Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring statistics in parapsychology. My guest is Professor Jessica Utz, an emerita professor in statistics at the University of California at Irvine. She is a former president of the American Statistical Association. She is co-author of Mind on Statistics and author of Seeing Through Statistics. This interview was recorded in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I was attending the award ceremony for the Bigelow Institute Essay Competition, where I was an awardee and Professor Utz was one of the judges. And now I'll switch over to that video. Why don't we start with your uh, experience as a child? My father was very interested in parapsychology, although I don't think I ever heard that term. Mm -hmm. um, but he um, was very intuitive, and it turned out he grew up just a few miles from Lilydale, which is a large spiritualist community in the world. And so his parents used that as a tourist destination when they had company, which wasn't very often, but when they had visitors from out of town, um, they would take them to Lilydale. And it was a small rural community. This was the um, 1920s. And um, so, you know, people didn't get around very much. Niagara Falls was about 85 miles away, but you didn't go there on uh, just a, a visit with company. So they would take people to Lilydale, and they would go to these open sessions where they had a stage medium, basically, talking to people in the audience. And growing up, I kept hearing this one story about how my grandparents were there with visitors. And the medium on the stage said, I have a message for Werner and Hilda, which were their names. And they were so startled that they didn't respond. And then the person said, uh, well, whoever you are, uh, the message is from your ancestor who was in the Revolutionary War. And I don't know any more about what was said about it after that. So, of course, as a skeptic, I think, well, they lived in the area. People probably knew them, and therefore it could easily be that somebody knew that Werner and Hilda were in the audience. Uh, so the skeptical side of me thinks that. Um, but I've been back to Lilydale. Every time somebody in the family died, we would go there for the funeral because that's where the family cemetery plot was, and visited it multiple times uh, and had some interesting experiences of my own there. So that got me kind of interested in parapsychology or the more broadly defined paranormal. Um, but then my father also was interested in testing these kinds of abilities. So uh, during the 60s when I was growing up, um, J.B. Ryan was quite well known in the news. Uh, and so my father decided to try some ESP tests with my sister and myself, um, my older sister. And um, we bombed. We, we, mm -hmm. we couldn't do it. But still, it made me aware that there was such a thing and that you could actually test it. But, but you mentioned you had some experiences in the cemetery? In, uh, in Lilydale itself. Mm -hmm. I had a sister who passed away in around the year 2000. And one of my sisters and I went up there to bury her ashes. And 
we went to one of these open meetings, and at the very end, they had a visiting medium from Ithaca. And she came over to me, and she says, can I come to you? And remember, there was like 200 people in the audience. She said, can I come to you? Uh, and I said, yeah. And she says, I have your sister in spirit. And then she went on to tell me other things, and uh, she said, you're going to write books for science teachers, and I have written textbooks for statistics, and so on. And, and so um, that was kind of startling. But again, the skeptical side of me thinks, all right, the cemetery's right down the road. You know, they could easily have um, inside informants mm -hmm. who saw us there the day before burying my sister's ashes. So mm -hmm. who knows? You know, it does a, but but those are the kinds of experiences that intrigued me. All of this eventually led to an imp a professional involvement. Yes, and in fact, the one in 2000 with my sister was after I was already professionally involved in parapsychology. Um, mm -hmm. But the earlier stuff with my father and learning that you could test for ESP and that sort of thing, um, that I think contributed to my interest when I was presented with the opportunity to get involved professionally in parapsychology. Because your your career has really been in the field of statistics, right. and and I have to imagine that it's unusual for a female to be in that field. That's true, actually. Yes, I was the first woman to get a PhD in my department at Penn State, and uh, yeah, it, it was unusual then. You, here you are uh, already bucking the trends, <laughs> and at some point you became acquainted with people who were doing professional work in parapsychology. I did, yes. Um, that story is that I uh, had gotten tenure. Well, first of all, let me back up a little bit. I had an undergraduate degree in math and psychology. Mm -hmm. And the reason I went into statistics, I had no idea what to do professionally. But statistics was the one course that combined those two majors. So I, I took a statistics course for the psychology major. Mm -hmm. So I knew nothing about what statistics really was all about, but I thought, oh, okay, I'll go to graduate school in that. So I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always, though, was interested in its applications in psychology mm -hmm. in general. But to get tenure back in those days, you didn't do applied research in statistics. You had to do theoretical research. Oh. So I spent the first six years as an assistant professor doing that kind of theoretical research, and I got tenure, and then I thought, okay, now all bets are off. I can do what I want to do. And uh, so I went on sabbatical at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And um, luckily for me, um, there was somebody in the department there who was a debunker, actually, of parapsychology, Percy Diacomas. Oh, yes. And, also uh, a statistician. Also a statistician, exactly. And actually a magician, a professional magician. Mm -hmm. uh, but he and I talked about things, and he knew that I was therefore interested in parapsychology. And so he introduced me or sent me over to see Peter Sturak, who at that time had just founded the Society for Scientific Exploration, along with a few other people. So I went to talk to Peter, and he told me about the upcoming SSE conference in Princeton. And at that time, my parents lived in southern New Jersey. So it was kind of a coming together of things. So I went to that conference. Since I was on sabbatical, I wasn't teaching. I could travel. So I went to that conference, and uh, that's where I heard professional talks about parapsychology for the first time and realized that it needed rigorous statistics. Uh, this was 1984-85. And at Princeton at that time, I think Charles Honerton was working. So 
Yes. Uh, Charles Honerton was not on the Princeton campus. People get confused about this. Um, Robert John had his lab on the Princeton campus, mm -hmm. and Charles Honerton had his lab in Princeton, mm -hmm. the psychophysical research lab, it was yeah. called at that time. So you met both of them. I met both of them, that's right. And I met Hal Putoff, who was still running the uh, Stargate program at SRI at the time. Mm -hmm. And since Stanford University is just down the road from SRI, in fact, SRI used to be Stanford Research Institute until the 1960s when the student protests ended up with them separating. Mm -hmm. um, but Hal was running that program then, and they actually needed statistical help. Mm -hmm. So that combination of meeting Charles Honerton and meeting Hal Putoff is what drew me in to parapsychology. And I'm sure they were eager to have a tenured <laughs> statistician working with them. That is true. I didn't realize at the time how unique that was, but yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> that is true. But there's a long history of both controversy and cooperation between the fields of parapsychology and the field of statistics. That's true. And in fact, some of the early statistical ideas came out of parapsychology, apparently. Things mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, I don't know, various kinds of randomized experiments and um, other kinds of statistical methods. I can't remember exactly what, but I know that there has been a lot of interplay between the two fields over the years. Because when back in the 1930s, when J.B. Rhine first published his card-guessing experiments, many people tried to criticize them by saying he, that he must have done his statistics incorrectly. That's right. And I still remember a famous quote from the 1930s from the president of what's called the Institute of Mathematical Statistics, which is still a very thriving statistics professional organization. Um, the guy's name was Burton Camp, I think, and he said, if Ryan is going to be criticized, it's going to have to be on other than statistical grounds because the statistics are solid. Mm -hmm. He's using the same statistics that were standard uh, throughout psychology. Exactly. Even today, though, to my understanding, there are uh, a lot of controversies about the use of statistics in psychology. That's true. Um, one of the things that's become controversial in psychology is the whole replication crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because psychologists don't understand things that parapsychologists do understand. Things like you can't do multiple testing without accounting for it. Um, uh, you can't sort of data snoop, you know, fish through your data for something that's statistically significant. Mm -hmm. um, you have to worry about statistical powers. So when psychologists talk about studies not replicating, they're not looking at the size of the effect. They're looking at whether or not the study was statistically significant, which is nothing but a measure of how large the study was, pretty much. The larger the study, the teeniest effect can be statistically significant if you have a very large study. Uh, but the, the parapsychologists recognized that fairly early on, partly thanks to famous psychologist Bob Rosenthal, mm -hmm. who uh, started basically trying to get parapsychologists to use effect sizes instead of p-values or statistical significance as a way to define replication. So. Well, I guess it's probably the case that because parapsychology has been so heavily criticized by mainstream science, they became more alert to all the different problems. They did. And the studies are so well designed compared to some others that I have worked on mm -hmm. in other areas. Um, you know, they have to be because of the the skeptics. Well, you were called on to evaluate the research that had been funded by the U.S. government, right. uh, SRI and SAIC, the remote viewing research. That's right, yes. Um, and in fact, 
originally there was supposed to be a panel of four of us looking at that work, but apparently um, the time frame got shortened, and so they realized they had to get an answer quickly. And um, Ray Hyman and I had both been familiar with the, the research already. He had been a member of a National Academy of Sciences panel that had looked at it, and I had worked at SRI for a year. Uh, and so they narrowed it down to just the two of us, and we were the ones that did it. We had one summer mm -hmm. to write our reports. Now, I have heard many criticisms of that report. People have described it as sort of a setup yeah. that that the, um, I think it was the CIA perhaps, that wanted to discontinue the program and they were looking for an official justification. And, and so they set it up so that the final evaluation would say there's nothing here to look at. Well, I think what they did, so um, they originally at that point it was being funded by the DIA, the mm -hmm. Defense Intelligence Agency, and they wanted to get rid of it because the Cold War was over, frankly, and they were using it for spying and mm -hmm. for intelligence work. Um, but they, there were some senators that really wanted it to continue. And so there was this little political battle, from my understanding. Um, I'm getting all this secondhand, of course. I was not in on those political battles. But right. uh, they wanted to see if the CIA would take it over. And I think the agreement, the compromise was to have a skeptic and somebody who had already been a proponent mm -hmm. in print so that whichever way the decision was finally made, they could justify it based on our report. Okay. But, but to my knowledge, they limited what you were allowed to look at. Yes, they did. They, uh, <laughs> it was interesting. First of all, they told us that we could only, that we were only supposed to evaluate the government sponsored programs, to which I responded, no, that's not how statistics works. Mm -hmm. The point of, I mean, the, the, the whole idea in statistics is you look for replication. You look for the same effect, similar effect across different experimenters, different laboratories, and so on, so that you can rule out the idea that just one experimenter might have a flaw in their process. So I not only analyzed the remote viewing work that had been done at SRI and um, then SAIC, which took over from SRI, but I also evaluated the Gonsfeld work that had been done up to that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were five or six laboratories doing Gonsfeld work at the time. And that was very similar to remote viewing. And so I thought, well, if there is some ability those two frameworks are using the same kind of ability, and therefore it's fair to lump, you know, to look at the data together. We so. we should define for some of our viewers okay. who won't know automatically what the Gansfeld is, but I think in, to put it into shorthand, both remote viewing and Gansfeld are regarded as free response clairvoyance tests. Well, clairvoyance or sometimes precognition. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the target is not selected until after the person does the, the thing. So yes. So in both cases, there's somebody called a receiver, and that's a person who's trying to be psychic. And uh, sometimes there's also a sender who is looking at the target and trying to send it to the receiver. Uh, in the Gansfeld, the receiver is in a kind of a strange setup. Um, they have red light shining in their eyes, and so that it doesn't hurt their eyes, they have like halved ping pong balls taped over their eyes. They're in a very relaxed, comfortable chair, and they have white noise coming into their ears. And they have a microphone that they talk into to try to describe what they think the sender is looking at. Now, um, the reason I've heard uh, for the 
red light and the white noise is that therefore their brain is getting signals, but they're not making any sense. Mm -hmm. And so the hope is that they're getting input from wherever, the sender or in precognition mode, their own future, and that they will then pick that up and describe it when they do their what's called mentation. In remote viewing, it's similar except that the person is not under all that and they have pen and paper. So usually with remote viewing, it consists of drawings uh, and then sometimes verbal, but mostly just drawings. I understand that one of the other differences between the Gansfeld and remote viewing and actual practice is that often the Gansfeld researchers would try to do multiple trials in, in one session, whereas remote viewing was usually one trial at a time. Definitely remote viewing is one trial at a time. When I was at SRI, they were doing some of that. But the Gansfeld work that I have participated in or observed was also one trial at a time. Oh. But it may very well be that they did more. Um, but it takes a long time to do one Gansfeld session uh, because especially if there's a sender, which there usually is, um, you get the sender set up in their room, you get the receiver set up in a completely shielded separate room, uh, and it's set up so that the sender can actually hear the receiver. So the idea is the sender is looking at the target and is trying to be kind of a cheerleader when the receiver says something where they're getting warm. Uh, but, of course, the receiver can't hear the sender. Mm -hmm. um, and that would obviously be sensory leakage, as we call it. Yeah. Uh, so that's how the Gansfeld works. Um, whereas in remote viewing, the um, sender generally cannot hear what the receiver is drawing or saying. To my understanding, you and Ray Hyman, a well-known skeptic, both agreed that the statistics were significant and the studies were well-controlled. That's right. Yes. Uh, but Ray still had some objections. Um, it's actually interesting how that all worked. So the way it was supposed to work is that Ray and I were each supposed to write a report, and then we were, we were each supposed to get to do a rebuttal to the other one's report. Mm -hmm. Ray missed the deadline. So I got my report in, and they passed it along to him, and he still hadn't written his. Mm -hmm. So he wrote his report by basically responding to mine. So fortunately, then they gave me a chance to write a rebuttal to his report. Um, one thing I want to go back to is when you said what we were told to look at and not look at. Yeah. So there were two parts to the program, This what's now come to be called Stargate, although it had a variety of different names. That was the one that stuck at the end. Um, there were two parts to it. One was the scientific research, the remote viewing research, but the other was the um, what they called operational work, the so-called psychic spying. And Ray and I were not tasked with looking at that because that was not statistical. Instead, the American Institutes for Research, which was hired to oversee the whole thing, was supposed to have some personnel that looked at those reports and, and those results. Um, but a few months after we did our report, I got a call from somebody who worked in the government at a high level and at secret clearances. And he said, you know, what you wrote in your report is really, really interesting. And the work that I do for my agency could really benefit from this. So he started delving into it, and he discovered boxes and boxes of unopened reports that the AIR team was supposed to look at. So uh, they did not do a full job on that, from, from what I hear. Again, this mm -hmm. is secondhand, so I don't want to uh, get myself in trouble, but that yeah. is what I heard. But when, by the time the report was distributed to the general public, it was mostly Ray Hyman's perspective that got reported in the news. Yeah, that's true, because um, 
course, that's what the media is comfortable with, right? <laughs> so, phew, yeah. ooh, nothing to this. We don't have to worry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I often wonder if it wasn't somehow set up. Yeah, certainly, yeah. But in any case, your conclusions were very strong. That's right, yeah. In, in fact, as I recall from having heard you lecture on this topic over the years, the, the research in parapsychology is more substantial than in some other fields of science that are well recognized. Many other fields of science, absolutely. Yeah, the, the effects, if it was something more mundane, we wouldn't even be having a discussion about whether or not it's real. It would be so automatic because the results are, are so um, consistent over time, different laboratories, different methods, and so on. So, you know, it's, it's just because people think that it can't possibly be real because it doesn't fit with their current thinking about how the world works. But yes, the experiments are done really well. The results are very uh, strong. They're not large effects, but they're consistently there. Uh, and that's, again, what science looks for is replication across laboratories, across studies, and so on. And now you've been looking at this research now for decades. And, yeah. and of course, in addition to remote viewing and the Gansfeld, there are many other lines of research in parapsychology that also show statistical significance. Yeah, that's true. Um, more recently, you know, things like the um, physiological effects. So um, the, the idea that uh, what's called presentiment, mm -hmm. that people react to a negative photograph before they see it compared to reacting to a neutral photograph before they see it, yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of other uh, methods that have been done. And partly because I think people in parapsychology are now saying, if people aren't convinced by the data already, you know, doing yet one more proof-oriented study isn't going to convince them. So let's do process-oriented studies. Let's see if we can figure out how this works what's going on. And so research has basically turned to that kind of a focus. I've always had a, an argument with process-oriented research, okay. which is that, to my understanding, it is always vulnerable to an experimenter effect, that the experimenter's cherished hypothesis might be influenced by psychic means from the experimenter. That's not just a problem with process-oriented research. That's a problem with proof-oriented research as well. And uh, it's well known in parapsychology that there are certain experimenters that are psi-conducive, mm -hmm. psi being the general term for psychic abilities, yeah. and other experimenters that just don't get results. Yeah. And uh, I would like to expand on that idea, which is why would we think that's limited to parapsychology? That could be true in every area of research, medical research. You know, when people do medical research, they have a desired hypothesis. So how do we know that the researchers aren't using their psi abilities to affect the results of any kind of research? Well, I think that's the very reason why so many people in mainstream science don't want to deal with <laughs> parapsychology, because it, it threatens the whole establishment that they've built up with their, all their findings over the years. That's true. But as they say, just because you don't want it to be true doesn't mean it isn't. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I think it would be very wise for all researchers and all scientists to pay attention to this research, because I think it could be affecting their own research 
all across the board. Mm -hmm. Well, you've risen very high in your profession. You're an emerita professor of statistics. You're a former president of the American Statistical Association. How do you think your colleagues in academia have responded to your work? It's very interesting. I do talk about this a lot when I'm asked to give a seminar in a statistics department. That's because it's interesting. And sometimes I'm asked to give one in the evening, you know, for the general public or for students or whatever. Uh, and so everybody's interested in hearing about this. But what's interesting is that at the end of a talk, I'll show them all kinds of statistics, right? Really convincing statistics. And they'll just kind of get these looks. And then I'll say, okay, now I want to know how many of you would be more convinced if I showed you double that number of studies, you know, with the same size effect, versus if you had one overwhelming personal experience. And people, by and large, will say, yeah, I'm sorry, but one overwhelming personal experience would convince me more than seeing more data. I just can't believe the data, but I would believe it if I had an overwhelming personal experience. This includes other professors and professionals. Absolutely, and statistics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Other statisticians. Other statisticians who should know better, yeah. When I gave my uh, presidential address for my 2016 uh, ASA presidency, I gave that as an example. And I said, you know, we all like stories. We, I think, get more convinced by stories than by data, all of us. And it goes back to William James, who talked about the idea that we really have two minds. We have an intuitive mind, and we have an analytical mind. More recently, uh, Daniel Kahneman has taken up this theme, and he wrote a beautiful book called Thinking, Fast and Slow. And he talks about system one thinking and system two thinking. System one thinking is what has helped us survive. It's our immediate response to things. It's our in intuition. Uh, it's very fast act. So that's the thinking fast part of the title. So the, uh, the thinking slow, system two thinking, is analytical, and that's where statistics comes in and where evaluating things statistically comes in. But even statisticians, you know, we have, I don't know how many thousands or millions of years humans have been thinking, but um, it's probably in the hundreds of thousands, but we're all programmed that way mm -hmm. for survival. So uh, we all have that, that stories really appeal to us. We are more convinced by a story. If you look at science writing, like in the New York Times or other uh, science outlets, you'll see that a good science writer starts with a story, and then they give the data. And so I've always, uh, my other area of huge concern is statistical literacy for the public. And I have always encouraged statistics professors that when you teach introductory statistics, you have to give the stories. You have to make this interesting. You know, you have to explain why they should care. Um, and so, uh, again, when I give these talks, statisticians, like others, prefer stories. It's interesting because I, it's hard to think of a subject that might be more boring than statistics. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the stories are especially important. And, and yet, well, let's take in your case, you had these personal experiences that didn't really convince you either. You were more convinced by the statistics. Let me tell you the personal experience I had that did convince me. Mm -hmm. um, and it was with, again, my father. Mm -hmm. And it was right after I went to this SSE conference where I was first introduced to scientific parapsychology. SSE being the Society the, the for Sci Scientific Exploration. Yes. Uh, and so that was where I met Charles Onerton, and he had a lab where he was doing Gonsfeld experiments. 
my parents lived not far away, and so he invited my father, well, he invited me to participate in experiments, and I said, well, my father's very interested, so maybe I'll bring him. And uh, knowing from my whole childhood which one of us was probably more psychic, I said, all right, my father will be the receiver and I will be the sender. And so um, they were doing an experiment at the time where they had people come back four times. So my father went once the first time I wasn't in the area, so he took a friend to be the sender. And then, um, just to summarize it, he did four total, and two of them I was the sender. So on the second one, I was the sender. So we're driving to Princeton, and he's explaining to me what happened on the first time he went. And he said, uh, you know, I was the receiver, and I started talking, and I kept seeing, like, red and things about government and gold. And um, one of the choices... Uh, I need to back up a minute. When you do Gonsfeld, the judging is done by the receiver. The receiver shown four choices, one of which was the right answer. Okay, so he's shown the four choices, and one of them's the Kremlin. And so he said, well, that's it. I was seeing red and gold and government stuff. It's got to be the Kremlin. So he's telling me this story as we're driving to Princeton. So we get there, and I go into the sender's room, and the target comes up on the TV screen, and it's the Kremlin. And I thought, oh, no, there's like almost 400 possible targets, and it has to come to the Kremlin again. He's never going to get it. He's going to think he's just remembering from the previous time. So he starts talking, and he starts talking about gold domes and red, and he says, it's the Kremlin again. I know it shouldn't be, but it is. <laughs> and it was. So that was the first time I went with him. Uh -huh. The second time I went with him, uh, the target happened to be a short video clip. They sometimes were short video clips. And it was this guy in a white space suit floating in space with a blue background. I think it was from one of those space movies where the guy got untethered from his space station and he's floating around mm -hmm. in space. And my father started talking about the Blue Boy painting. Now, I don't know if you know the Blue Boy painting, but it's basically a kid standing there in a blue suit with a white kind of background. Yes. And here I am looking at this white guy in a white suit with a blue background, and he kept talking about the blue boy painting. He just kept coming back to that theme. So when he was shown the four choices at the end, as soon as he saw the guy floating in space with the white spaces, he said, that's it, the blue boy. So he nailed it again. Mm -hmm. And all four times he went, he got a first choice. He got, he got it right. And because I suppose you trust your father. Exactly. So that was what it was. Because at the time, again, I have this very skeptical hat, like I explained about Lilydale. And so, you know, I was thinking at the time, well, you know, maybe they're just trying to draw me in as a statistician. They need a statistician. So, you know, maybe there is a problem here. I don't know. But my own father, I knew he wasn't cheating. So there I saw it with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the field is going from here, Jessica? Oh, boy, that's a really tough question. Um, it actually fits into what I think is happening in a larger picture, which is we're in trouble. Humanity is in trouble. We need a reset. <laughs> and um, I'm hoping that parapsychology can play a role in that. Uh, I don't know what it will be, but I do think that now more than ever, people need to understand that these abilities exist, that we are somehow interconnected in some way, because otherwise, how would how do you explain these kinds of abilities? And so I hope that's where we're going. But I don't know how we're going to get there. Well, as a statistician, really, I, I suppose your job is simply to determine whether or not there's an effect that deviates significantly from random expectation. That's true. Yeah, that's 
that's the statistician part. That's right. Yeah. But as a human being, you're right. probably very curious as to what's actually going on. Exactly. And hopeful that we can get to the bottom of that, because I think it will make a huge difference for humanity, frankly. Do you have any thoughts about the different theoretical approaches? That's an interesting question. I think it's pretty complex, mm -hmm. first of all. There are various theoretical ideas out there. Um, Probably the one that appeals to me the most at this point is one that I read in many of the essays for the Bigelow Consciousness Contest. Of which we should mention you were one of the I judges. I was one of the judges, and uh, that was really eye-opening for me. It was really a, a fun experience to read all those essays. And uh, But the, the theory that, believe it or not, I had not heard much about before was the idea that the brain is the receiver and not the creator of consciousness, mm -hmm. that uh, somehow, you know, it's kind of like TV and radio waves are in the air all the time, but you can't pick them up unless you have the right receiver, that somehow consciousness of who knows what form is out there and our brains are uh, receivers and filters, mm -hmm. that, that we can't obviously process it all at once, so our brains act as filters and receivers. Um, so that was really interesting to read that theory that I guess originated with William James and probably even before him. Yeah. So to me, that's the most interesting theory right now. Well, it sort of turns normal neuroscience upside down. Kind of. But, you know, neuroscientists apparently have not been able to pinpoint how the brain creates consciousness. So uh, I think it just adds to them being in limbo about what's going mm -hmm. on. If they ever be willing to admit that they don't really know. Right. Right. Yes. Well, Jessica Utz, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm so pleased to have this time with you. I think your contributions to parapsychology have been, frankly, essential. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. And thank you for the interview, and you're welcome for being here. <laughs> and for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.